This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, for the 2020 election, we've been focusing mostly on the candidates who want to challenge Trump. We also need to consider the voters and the changes in the electorate since 2016. Steve Phillips will explain. Also, face-to-face, door-to-door organizing is by far the best way to mobilize people for political action. And Michael Walzer has been thinking about that. We'll talk with him about his new book, Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics, later in the show. But first, today the Attorney General is defying the House of Representatives. Trump Watch starts right now. Yesterday, maybe you saw the news, Bill Barr testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and today he refused to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. For comment, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. What a momentous day. Well, you know, I have to say, it seems to me that things got... A little darker for all of us yesterday uh, with the bar uh, testimony. I guess we should have expected it, but somehow it seemed like we turned a page in our history and that from now on things are, are much more serious. Uh, is that just my own uh, uh, neurosis? Uh, no, John. Uh, I can assure people, listeners, that you are neurotic okay. um, and and have all the challenges of applause that all of us do. <laughs> um, you're not the superhuman some people think. However, uh, in this case, uh, this is a real thing. Um, and it comes down to a handful of words. Uh, when I believe Senator Blumenthal uh, asked about some, you know, the particular uh information notes put on a discussion with Robert Mueller, who had done the Mueller report. Um, uh, Attorney General Barr said, instead of saying, yes, of course, I'll provide those to the Congress. Uh, the Mueller report is an important document. The discussions about it are important. You have every right to examine those notes from that discussion. Uh, he said, why would I? Mm. Mm. And of course, John, the answer to that question is the Constitution you swore an oath to, which requires yeah. the executive branch to cooperate with the legislative branch. This isn't a complicated thing. Uh, but when the Attorney General of the United States says that, and everything else he said in the course of uh, that hearing, uh, you have what is politely referred to as a constitutional crisis. Yeah. Well, the most ominous thing Barr said for me was that he believes the president can fire any prosecutor investigating him if the president feels the accusations are false. That means right now the policy of the Department of Justice is that any federal prosecutor investigating Trump can be fired. And right now they're about at least a dozen investigations underway, spinoffs of the Mueller uh, inquiry. Uh, as as uh, Hillary Clinton, who I don't quote very often, said, <laughs> said last night uh, to Rachel Maddow, you know, this is the road to tyranny. Yeah, and, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, whether you agree with her on every issue or not, has been very, very good 
on this stuff, on this, on this discussion. You know why? Why? She's one of the remaining people who was around in a relatively upfront uh, central spot for the Watergate inquiry. Yeah, she was, and, a, she was on the staff, a, a young lawyer on the st- legal staff. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to in any way inflate that and suggest that she was the key player, but she was around it, and certainly um, in that moment where you get your impressions of how the republic is supposed to operate, uh, few people had a, a more front-row seat than she. And that takes us back to that core concept, because um, it is the road to tyranny, of course. And we know how horrified we were by the suggestion of Nixon and some people around him that if the president says it, it's the law. Yeah, right? yeah. Remember that? Right. And that's where Barr is bringing us to. Now, Richard Nixon was a very skilled political player. He knew his way around. Uh, he had served in the House. He had served in the Senate. He had been vice president of the United States in a constitutionally tenuous moment uh, when Eisenhower's health had been poor. Uh, and so, I mean, he really knew his way around. So when he said that, um, he was pushing a concept that he wanted to push. He was operating from a a standpoint of uh, some knowledge, some determination. He was wrong, but at least you knew you were kind of, even he probably knew a little bit that he was wrong. Um, When someone like William Barr says to Donald Trump, who's never served in the House, never served in the Senate, never served as vice president, and as best I can tell, never taken a serious look at the Constitution. Yeah. When William Barr says it to Donald Trump, you run the very real risk that Donald Trump will take actions that would make Nixon's head spin. Yeah. Well, and yeah, the, you'd be scared, okay? Yeah. Well, the other the other part of this is that releasing the Mueller uh, correspondence with Barr. Mueller, we now know, complained to Barr repeatedly that Barr should release the summaries of the report prepared by Mueller and his staff describing their conclusions. The summaries made two things clear. First, that the Russians ran a campaign to interfere with the American election and get Trump elected, and they succeeded. And second, that Trump can be charged with at least eight or maybe it's ten charges of obstruction of justice, but Congress has to do it. And neither of those conclusions were reported by Barr to the American people in his summary. Instead, he said Trump had been exonerated. You could call that dishonest. You could call that deceptive. Let's call it lying about the biggest political issue of the last two years. Absolutely. And let's, let's also you know, just get a little bit of clarity on, on the role that William Barr is playing. He is now appearing before Congress and taking actions in the, in the public sphere, uh, refusing to appear before Congress in some circumstances, not as the Attorney General of the United States, but as the defense counsel for Donald Trump. And that really needs to be understood, because yeah. if you don't look at him that way, you cannot understand the absurdity of his performances. Um, this, is, this is, you know, kind of bad theater, uh, except that it involves the Constitution of the United States and the basic premises of the Republic. And it was brought out very well by Kamala Harris in her questioning of Barr uh, on a, 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 what should have been a, a minor, you know, a simple Q&A, an important issue, but a simple Q&A. She said, did anybody at the White House 
suggest how you should handle this stuff. And William Barr, you know, like I said, could you restate the question? Mm. And then she goes, well, did anybody at the White House suggest or ask you to, to you know, take certain actions and or handle these things in certain ways? And, and he was really struggling with it. He was like, it seemed like he was tortured there. On the, and he <laughs> says, I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. Yeah. And, and you know, Kamala Harris, an experienced prosecutor, says, okay, hinted, inferred. <laughs> right. and, and what Barr said was, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's pretty big stuff here, man. If you're the Attorney General of the United States, and the President of the United States or people associated with him tried to tell you how to handle issues involved with potential, I won't convict her, but potential criminal wrongdoing, potential impeachable offenses. I mean, the, the biggest ticket stuff, the top of the list stuff, you wouldn't be aware of that. You wouldn't know whether it happened. You wouldn't. You know, you would quibble over the word suggest. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not an individual appearing as a sworn guardian of the Constitution. This is somebody playing the role of a criminal defense lawyer. And then today he, uh, he refused to appear before the House Judiciary Committee because he didn't like the rules. He, the Justice Department announced they will not comply with the subpoena from the House Judiciary Committee for the full unredacted Mueller report. And Committee Chair Jerry Nadler said compliance with congressional subpoenas is not optional, close quote. The basic question here is, well, what happens now? Who has the responsibility at this point for investigating the president uh, and to determine whether he's committed high crimes and misdemeanors. The answer is pretty clear. The Constitution doesn't say this is the job of the Justice Department and its prosecutors. The Constitution says the job of investigating the president for high crimes and misdemeanors falls to the House, and then there should be a trial in the Senate. It's very clear. There's a, it's called impeachment. And the framers, under, people say, well, but the, politically this isn't, you know, doesn't have majority support right now. The framers understood that if the House were to open an impeachment proceedings, they would face political pressures. They're all elected officials. But nevertheless, the Congress makes Congress alone responsible for uh, evaluating uh, and judging whether a president is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. So seems to me that's, that's where we're going to go now. I wrote a book about this stuff. I've written a number of books. About <laughs> you know, this is not an option. Yeah. Right? This is a duty. You swear an oath. Members of Congress swear an oath similar to that which the president and the attorney general swear. It, it's to you know, protect and defend you know, and to bear true witness to this, to totally embrace this role that you have. You have a duty to the Constitution. So, yes, you are right, John. And, um, and here's the, the interesting thing. I think something that people lose sight of a lot when we're talking about the impeachment power, uh, you use the term process, all right? Process is an important thing to understand because process involves, you know, steps, right? Things are done. And so an impeachment inquiry 
puts an issue on the table. It says, you know, look, we're going to examine whether this guy has committed high crimes and misdemeanors, whether this individual uh, potentially should be charged with wrongdoing. If a president's impeached, uh, he or she ultimately is not removed from office. They are simply put over for trial by the Senate. So the first duty of the House, the House Judiciary Committee, is to hold hearings and to identify the process in which it's involved. And people too often see the whole thing at the end of it, not the beginning of it. Uh, When I wrote my book on impeachment, one of the things that fascinated me is that there have been dozens of instances throughout history where people have proposed to impeach presidents, Supreme Court justices, cabinet members, and only a handful of them get to, you know, fruition, that they really get to a point where you're voting on articles of impeachment or even impeaching and then going to a Senate trial. And so many people try to rush this in their mind. The best way to understand it is, um, you know, making beer is a process. Okay. Right? Okay. And, and if I say, you know, we, we really have to begin a, a beer-making process, you don't expect me to hand you a beer immediately, right? That is you, true. I, you know, so i got to go get hops. i got to go get whatever they put in, you know. Yeah. i got to have a brewer. You know, we, you know, it's a process. And I'm not trying to diminish the concept of impeachment and say it's the same as making beer. Obviously, beer is a more honorable task. Often. <laughs> but, um, but what I am trying to say is that that's how, what people need to get in their head is, a, a process has steps, and at this point, it strikes me that William Barr and Donald Trump have gotten us to a point where it is appropriate to begin an impeachment process. And frankly, uh, to my mind, you know, I think Trump has committed impeachable offenses. I, I have no doubt of that, and I've said it to you before. Uh, I can say without any compunctions, however, that William Barr has committed what seemed to be, to me, to be more clearly impeachable offenses than those that we talk about with Donald Trump. And so we've got a mess in this administration. It is a, it is a really difficult, churning situation. I'm glad Jerry Nadler's in charge of that committee because he's a very calm guy. I think he, you know, he sent, tends to you know, go deliberately. He's given Barr more time in which to, te- to come around to cooperation. That's all healthy and that's all good. And all I will tell you is my gut instinct is that this becomes unavoidable. And uh, Trump will try to play that politically. And we will also have people in our media saying, oh, this is a crisis. This is chaos. This is the worst thing in the world. Um, I'll just remind you. Nixon's attorney general went to jail. Nixon's vice president had to stand down and be, you know, leave office. Uh, and many other people at very high levels with Nixon, as well as Nixon, faced uh, accountability issues. And then Nixon himself ultimately, uh, three articles of impeachment voted by the House Judiciary Committee. We survived all of that and came out of it better as a country. We came out of it better as a country. I'm sorry we're out of time. John Nichols, the book we're talking about here is The Constitution Demands It, The Case for Impeachment of Donald Trump, forward by John Nichols. John, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's always great to have you on the show. A total pleasure, my friend, as always. 
I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Later in this hour, how to do movement organizing, Michael Walzer will explain. But first, for the 2020 election, we've been focusing mostly on the candidates who want to challenge Trump, but we also need to consider the voters and the changes in the electorate since 2016. For that, we turn to Steve Phillips. He's a civil rights lawyer and the founder of Democracy in Color, an organization dedicated to race politics and the new American majority. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brown is the New White, How a Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He's also a regular contributor to The Nation. We reach him today in San Francisco. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, you open your new piece for The Nation by saying that three things conspired to make the 2016 election a perfect storm. Let's remind our listeners that the election was determined by only 78,000 votes in three states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. What do we need to know about that perfect storm? Right. Well, the very first thing is to not forget and to not be disempowered um, that by the fact that Clinton got three million more votes in the country. This, this president is so unapologetic and destructive that we can feel like he has majority support, but he did not have majority support. So he lost by three million votes. And then even in those three states where he won the, uh, the, the popular, the electoral college, he did not get the majority of vote. And so what happened in those states is you had the progressive vote splinter. And there were big increases for Jill Stein and for uh, Gary Johnson. Jill Stein's increase in Michigan was greater than the margin by which Trump won in Michigan. And then you had a dramatic drop in the black vote across all three states as well. I have to sigh. And uh, your work focuses on the changes in the makeup of the electorate since 2016. You argue that these now give a clear electoral advantage to the Democrats. Uh, Mostly, the country continues to get browner, but how significant is that going to be for the voting pool in 2020? So the, the constellation of foundations did a report, Center for American Progress, Brookings, et cetera, and they looked at the demographic changes in the voting population um, since 2016, looking at 2020. 2020 will be the most diverse electorate ever. If 2016 is an exact replay with all, with all the groups voting at the same rates and the same partisan preferences, Democrats will win just on the composition the electorate has changed enough in those three states, as well as the rest of the country, to flip those states to the Democrat. So that's without doing anything. If we just do it all over again, Democrats would win because the country is that much more diverse. On top of that, there's our large numbers of Americans, Latinos, in particular um, in, in, in these different states, who could be mobilized. There are uh, um, We'll have four years of people who were not 18, at the time of the vote um, in 2016, they're all now coming to the electorate. So the electorate is going to be that much more favorable than it was uh, in 2016. Now, what about all the Republican efforts at vote suppression? Won't they continue to hurt Democrats next year and maybe even hurt more? Yes. Well, that's why they do it. They can actually count oftentimes better than Democrats. They know what these numbers look like. And that's that's we saw that happen last 2018 in Georgia in particular, 
And so the, the Republicans will definitely be trying to continue their voter suppression efforts. What bodes better for the Democrats this time is that one of the leading states for voter suppression in 2016 was Wisconsin, led by uh, Republican Governor Scott Walker, and then Michigan uh, as well, um, which was led by Republican Governor, was doing everything they could to block people from voting. Both of those states now have Democratic governors who won in 2018. They have African-American lieutenant governors in those states. So the apparatus of the government now will be put in place of actually trying to get people to vote rather than trying to block them to vote. And so that bodes even more uh, favorable uh, for Democrats. And let's just remember that the uh, Michigan's electoral votes went to Trump only because he got 11,000 more votes than Hillary Clinton, and in Wisconsin, 22,000 votes. Uh, If we have a replay, that's the number of votes that have to switch in order for the Electoral College uh, to go in the opposite direction. So we've been talking here about Michigan and Wisconsin, also about Pennsylvania. Uh, Are there uh, red states or purple states from 2016 that could go Democratic next year because of these population changes? Yes, very much so. So you've got, and also on top of that, you have the results from 2018. Yeah where there was significant infrastructure built, people registered, mobilized, organized, particularly in Georgia and uh, Florida, and also in Arizona. And so those three states are all trending Democratic. And so if there's significant effort to build upon what was done in 2018 and to register and increase and mobilize voters in those states, then all three of those states um, are winnable states. And then also there was uh, there's North Carolina's in the mix, which has a I believe a, a three a, you know trifecta this coming year presidential battleground gubernatorial and a competitive Senate race. So all of those states and those states are really more even you know from the future standpoint even more promising because the trends are very much accelerated there in terms of how um, diverse they're becoming. The consequence of the the Puerto Rico um, crisis people moving uh, to uh, Florida, so large numbers of uh, uh, Puerto Ricans in that state, making it even more diverse. So between consolidating the Rust Belt and investing in the Sun Belt, the numbers exist. The Democratic vote can be consolidated and mobilized. We haven't yet talked about white people. Now, a clear majority of white people have been voting Republican for decades. Of course, there's the South. especially white men, especially older white men. And there's that horrible statistic from 2016, 53% of white women voted for Trump. Do you see any chance of changing some of that? Yes. And so 2018 was actually, uh, there were a number of white women, particularly suburban white women, who had finally had enough of Trump. And so he, the, the Republicans had a 10-point advantage in the 2016 election uh, among white women. But in the 2018 election, it was a dead, a dead, dead heat. So some of those uh, Republican white women um, cannot put up with this any longer. And so some of them are uh, gettable in terms of being able to put together our coalition. But I mean, it is important to realize that that is the population, this notion about trying to 
get the conservative white male working class, which is what too many people are obsessed about, there's very little data that there is possible to make headway beyond the ones who are already with us, except among those who may have defected third and fourth parties. So we should be able to actually try to attract those folks back. But it's really, in terms of the white vote, um, it's the suburban uh, uh, white Republican women who are the most susceptible to being won over. And we're talking specifically here about white college-educated women are the ones who shifted from Republican to Democratic in the 2018 congressional elections. Is that right? Yes. The college-educated is the grouping. Uh, and that's the point, one point I'm trying to make in the article, too, and then, you know, Ron Brownstein talks about this a lot, is that there's fundamentally a struggle within this country. It's not any accident that Trump was elected after the first black president. There's a coalition of transformation, which is what we call the Obama coalition, and what we call the coalition of restoration, which is to make America a great crowd, <laughs> uh, make great again crowd, back when we were segregated and women were second-class citizens. So that's the fundamental battle and divide. And fortunately, the coalition of transformation is larger and gets bigger with the increasing diversity. Every single day in this country, there's 7,000 more people of color out of the population versus 1,000 whites. So the trend is irreversible at this point. And so I think it's important that we hold that knowledge and carry ourselves with the confidence that we do our work right. We Democrats should win, and we should not be trying to, to sacrifice our values at this altar of electability, that somehow um, we're in a one-down position and we have to, to you know, cast about to try to get somebody who can beat Trump. The numbers are in our favor. If we organize, mobilize, and inspire, he should be defeated. Well, let's just talk for a minute or two about the candidates uh, here, because, um, of course, the candidates do matter. Hillary, there's this other horrible statistic, got something like 5 million fewer votes than Obama had four years earlier, and a lot of those were African-American votes. Uh, so, you know, it, it we, we can't assume that every, everybody who belongs demographically in the Democratic Coalition of Transformation is going to show up at the ballot box. We learned in 2016 that's not the case. Do you want to say anything about the candidates, name, naming names, about uh, who seems more focused on, on uh, turning out the Coalition of Transformation? Yes, and so it is a question of who can inspire, represent, tap and unleash that energy and that sentiment. The yeah. candidates who are most in the Obama mold are clearly Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Interestingly, Elizabeth Warren, she did very well at the She the People Summit, the Women of Color Summit. She has found a language and a voice that is also speaking to and resonating with, with voters of color. So at the moment, I would look at those three as the most um, strong in terms of being able to inspire and galvanize that coalition. Steve Phillips, you can read his illuminating article. It's called The President is Not the Front Runner at TheNation.com. Thank you, Steve. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, movement organizing, how to do it. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues.
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at Trump Watch Podcast. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first, what is to be done about a president who fills us with dread and rage? Michael Walzer says it's time for political action, for commitment and participation in movement politics. He served as co-editor of Dissent Magazine for more than three decades. He's also written for The New Republic, The New York Review, and recently for The Nation. He's Professor Emeritus at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. He's written many books, recently A Foreign Policy for the Left. We talked about it here not long ago. And his new book is titled Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics. He's also an old teacher of mine and an old friend. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. Well, what is to be done, of course, is a classic question on the left. You provided your answer when you wrote this book. That was in 1971, the dark days when Nixon was president and the war in Vietnam seemed like it would never end. Now that book has been republished by New York Review Classics. So I guess that makes it official. The book is a classic. Yes, along with a few hundred other (laughs) classics. Okay. But... (laughs) 1971 and 2019 are obviously different, but there are some similarities, at least for people on the left. Let's talk about that. Well, the crucial similarity is that we need to get off our backsides and into the streets, and we need to organize, we need to mobilize, we need to demonstrate, we need to do all of the things that um, some, that political the word political action defines. I actually wrote in the aftermath of the civil rights movement and the and the anti-war movement. In a moment when we weren't sure what to do, 70 and 71 was a time of when people on the left were, were confused about what to do. We thought we couldn't have a worse president than Nixon. We, we thought that again with Reagan. We thought that again with the second Bush. And now we know. <laughs> we know. <laughs> it, it didn't feel at that moment in 70, 71, it didn't feel like it feels now. The, the threat to American democracy seems much, much greater today than any time in my, in my lifetime. And that makes it especially important to, to think about ways to think about ways to, to organize. Um, and a lot of people are doing that. The resistance has many, many elements. Indivisible is very important. The women's march is very important. The, Black Lives Matter is very important. There is a lot going on, and we need to talk about it, and we need to to make it much bigger. Movement politics is what you recommend. That sounds great. But you say most people are innocent of the complications of political life. I'm quoting, they are unaware of the personal risks involved. What are the complications and the risks? You know, what, what I found in, 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 in the 60s, was people join movements like um, the civil rights. We were picketing Woolworths in Cambridge, or we were knocking on doors um, against the, the war. People new to politics find the hostility they encounter enormously difficult, surprising. They are surprised. Politics is a 
is as contentious, as adversarial. You march on a picket line and people insult you in, in, in ways you've never heard yourself talked about like that. <laughs> okay. And that takes getting used to and we need you need to you need to prepare people for that and you need to help them get through the first the the first response. And then, as we all know, anyone who has a history in left politics knows that conventional politics attracts conventional people and unconventional politics attracts unconventional people and you have to you have to deal with obsessives and, and, and zealots and crackpots who are good people, all of them, <laughs> and somehow have to be included, but also um, brought into um, accord with other people who, who, who are not crackpots or obsessives or zealots. There's a lot of diplomacy involved in politics, which I think also people don't don't understand. So there's the hostility, there's the zealotry, and then there's the apathy, the ignorance, and the not caring, and that's also surprising. Yes, yes. And uh, every political movement is also an educational movement. That's why you draft leaflets, you you write pamphlets, you you write statements that people can sign on to. You argue about what should be on the signs that you carry at a at a demonstration, and all that is educational. You you are that's what the union movement used to do for for millions and millions of American workers. Movements are are educational, and they produce political activists, even minimally political voters, who are much more intelligent because of where they're coming from. You say in the book Political Action, there are only two kinds of politics. There's pressure politics around issues and electoral politics around candidates. We can try to change the policies or we can try to change the people who make the policies. Let's talk about our situation right now when everyone is looking at the candidates in the Democratic primaries. You can join the Bernie campaign or the Elizabeth Warren campaign or the Kamala Harris campaign, but that doesn't seem like the same thing as movement politics and community organizations around issues, although the Bernie campaign in 2016 looked and felt a lot like a movement. But is working in presidential primary campaigns what you have in mind right now? Um, it's important that some people do that. I'm, I am a strong believer in a division of labor okay. on the left, but um, it's also important that people pick issues and organize around particular issues. And then you can endorse a candidate who, who will tell you that he's going to support you on that issue. And then if he wins, you have to continue. You have to keep the pressure on him because he's unlikely to do everything that he promised to do. So you need you need a movement focused on student debt, you need a movement focused on police brutality, you need a movement focused on health care or women's rights or you you need movements that, that that focus attention and and mobilize support so that you can tell a candidate we can deliver votes to you, we can deliver workers for you if you commit yourself on this issue, and remember, once you win, we won't let up the pressure. The 
big issue right now on the left is the Green New Deal. And what makes it so radical is the way it combines the issues. The Green New Deal, people argue that the way to win people to support action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is to mobilize people to support jobs programs, health programs, education programs. And we have to do it all. We have to do it all at once. And we have to do it all right now. Uh, mainstream people, uh, centrist liberals, object, and they say, let's focus on reducing carbon in the atmosphere. That's number one. That will be hard enough. I guess you could call this a choice between multi-issue politics and single-issue politics. Uh, How do we decide? How do you decide? Well, look, political parties are, by definition, multi-issue. They have to bring people together who are focused on, engaged with very, very different issues, who, people who have different interests. The party has to bring them together and has to produce a, a, a program. And I guess that's what the Green New Deal people who are Democrats are, are trying to do. I, I worry about dispersing our energies. So I'm, 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 I'm not sure. I like the people who are pushing the Green New Deal. Um, I'm not sure this is the the best strategy. Well, let me shift focus here to another thing you take up in your book, Political Action, meetings. Doing politics, first of all, means going to meetings. Tell us what makes for a good meeting and, and why so many are not good. You know, we on on the left, we have we we always have a problem of the activists, the militants, mostly young people who have a lot of time on their hands and who are eager and who who know that they are absolutely necessary to the cause, and then the community people, as we used to call them, that we aim to mobilize and bring in, who have families and jobs and not a lot of time. And they will come to a meeting and then miss a meeting, or they'll come to a meeting and leave early. And the militants will stay and talk and talk and talk and pass the resolutions at the end when a lot of the people have left. Um, and that's always a problem. And so we need to devise organizational structures that, that, that make room for full-scale participation, but also make room for partial participation. and. It involves some forms of accountability, forms of representation, and that's it's very, very important to to, to find a way to sustain the, the the energy and the commitment of people who have a lot of time and to hold on to the people who don't have a lot of time. Well, one of the keys to local work, of course, is canvassing. Talking to people face-to-face is probably the best way to get the sympathetic ones to take action and the apathetic ones to change their minds and the ignorant to find out what's happening. But canvassing is hard. There are many pitfalls. What have you learned about canvassing? Well, I've learned what you just said, that it is absolutely necessary and that the social media have not made it unnecessary. Let's talk also about demonstrating, another thing that movements and activists do. You say demonstrations don't always require large numbers of people. Your demonstration doesn't have to equal the Women's March the day after Trump's inauguration. But wouldn't it be better if it did? 
Oh, yes. I mean, one of the reasons for recruiting and mobilizing is to demonstrate. You want to demonstrate your strength. And the strength, the strength of the right is in money, but the strength of the left is always in numbers. And we, yes, you need numbers. But the numbers, in, in the, when we were picketing Woolworth stores, our big achievement, which we, which we thought of as a demonstration, at, at the height we were picketing 40 Woolworth stores while the kids in the South were sitting in at Woolworth lunch counters. 40 Woolworth stores with maybe 20 people at each picket line. That's 800 people. It's not an enormous number, but to get 800 people to come to a picket line, and they were often taunted and insulted and harassed, to get 800, that's a demonstration of strength. And it, 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 it was in our terms for our kind of movement. It was a big demonstration. We've only got a minute or two left. Do you have any last words for us? Well, my last words, um, and I'm speaking now as, a, as a, 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 an old person who doesn't have the energy he had 50 years ago, I think it is absolutely important, more important than it has ever been in my lifetime, that large numbers of American citizens commit themselves to the act of political work, to the act of protest to the act of constitutional defense, democratic defense. I I would love to go on the offensive, and I hope we do soon, but my first worry right now is we, we can't lose. We have a lot of lost ground to make up. We have a lot of principles under threat to defend, and we've we've got to go to work. We've got to go to work. Michael Walzer's new book is Political Action, A Practical Guide to Movement Politics. It's an invitation to commitment and participation. I wrote the introduction. Michael, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, John Nichols. He talked about Bill Barr. Steve Phillips talked about the new voters for 2020. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Uh, Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.